You're listening to The Whole Spiel, a podcast from USA Curling that puts the spotlight on people who curl in the United States, people who are building the sport, and people who just flat out love it. In this episode, we have a conversation with a guy who has led the construction process of a dedicated ice facility, not just once, but twice. He brought Long Island energy and a bit of chutzpah to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and wound up as the driving force behind a curling club. Craig Fisher, welcome to the whole spiel. Thanks, Dean. Great, uh, great to be on. Yeah, thank you for for joining us. Um, so, Craig, I met you in 2016 when I, I brought my brushing clinic to your club, and I remember I came away impressed by what you and your team had accomplished in such a short time. This three sheet facility and really what was a curling desert in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana. Um, and then just before COVID this last year, I guess, you moved into another location with four sheets. So all this progress I find pretty fascinating. But one of the things that amazes me, uh, if we go step back from your current facility, you went, you went from skating ice in your first facility to dedicated curling ice, and you had 24 members. So I want to know what made you take that crazy leap, because that's a, that's a big leap. Yeah, so it was it was a risk, uh, obviously. So we had started the club in 2010, lots of interest, you know, 85 members out of the gate. And as typical with an arena club, um, you know, you lose some people and it's tough to get them back in. You've got a maximum capacity of, you know, 32 people on the ice if you've got four sheets. And, you know, if you have four more people come, you know, you, you've got to find ways to try to accommodate them. And that can be a challenge. So right. uh, we, we stepped down in, you know, participation each year. Um, and then we had an Olympic cycle coming up and we knew we wouldn't be able to take advantage of uh, the Olympic cycle in an, in an optimal fashion on arena ice where, you know, we might be able to schedule two or three learn to curl sessions, you know, during the Olympics. And, and that's probably it. And that would have made it difficult for us to get back up to the level to sustain us for another four years. So uh, myself and Greg Eigner, one of our other founders, had been talking for years about, you know, wouldn't it be nice to get the dedicated ice um, and, and sort of always held it out there as a bit of a pipe dream. But, you know, with uh, with our participation level dropping and the Olympic year coming up, we, we sort of uh, looked at things and said, you know, we probably need to take a risk if, if this club is going to continue to exist because yeah, maybe we would have doubled, you know, participation up to 48 members, but four years down the road, we'd be down to 10 and, and right. wouldn't, wouldn't be sustainable. We were, you know, losing a little bit of money each time we we're out on the ice anyway with, with 24 participants. So, um, so we, you know, sort of took a field of dreams, build it and they will come approach and took some risks, um, you know, Greg and I both put some money into it and a lot of energy and, and uh, a few of our other club members did as well. And, and we were able to, to make it, um, you know, what did I, three months, $300,000 uh, later, we had a three sheet club. So your and, original, uh, your original club was on the site of a former bakery, right? The first club you built sort of on the Portland Columbus model, right? Rented a space. Yep. So we, we rented a space. We were, you know, we looked at 50 different locations, but ended up with a location that was a hundred yards from the ice rink that we originally curled at. And it was, uh, it was, it was nickel bakery, you know, thrift shop 
and in the back was a distribution center. So they, they didn't right. bake there, but in the front was where people would go in and buy their bread at a discount. And uh, in the back, it looks like a little strip mall in the front, but it's actually this large warehouse behind it. And we only took up about a third of the length of it. Um, uh, funnily enough, one of our, uh, one of our members' dads w- was a driver for Nichols Bakery and actually still had a key to the place uh, when we ended up moving in. Uh, and we ended up selling them back some of their truck lifts that they left behind. So that was interesting as well. But yeah, so it was, we, we got really lucky as, as those who have researched it uh, probably know, it can be difficult to find an optimal uh, warehouse, the, the right size for a, for a curling club. You want one that's, that's long and, and thin in general. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and we looked as, as I said, at about 50 different locations and just got really lucky uh, to find one a hundred yards away from our previous location. Uh, we just had to, there was, we actually looked at it uh, online once and said, well, it's not long enough. And then a, a new realtor came along and they said, yeah, actually the place next to it's vacant. It's just a, a drywall wall between it. You can knock that down. So, oh. um, so yeah, we got lucky. So you brought in the build out uh, 300K that, and then you, then your lease was on top of that. Is that right? Yep. Or yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so you- in the, so year one, you had 24 members in there. And then how did you grow? <laughs> so, so we opened a month before the Olympics. So we opened right. on January 19th or 18th or something like that of, of 2014. And a month later, the, uh, the Olympics happened. And, you know, we, so we started up, uh, we may or may not have even started up a league, but we, you know, we shut down and just ran, learned curls constantly during the Olympics. And, uh, ran rookie leagues immediately thereafter. And, you know, by the next September, when curling season started up, we were at like 75 members. So tripled membership uh, practically overnight and, uh, you know, grew, you know, a little bit incrementally year over year from there. And I know now you've, you're, you've moved into this, uh, you've got an owner financed uh, purchase, I guess, of a, of, a, of a new building. You have four sheets in there. Did you take equipment did you take your equipment when you, i guess you did right and how easy was that for clubs that are contemplating that yeah so um when we did the first club we used the ice mat system the calmac ice mat system and it, we had a train 50 nominal ton chiller mm-hmm. and uh, a low e ceiling um insulation um dehumidifier uh duct socks for both heater and and uh and a dehumidifier and almost all of that we moved over. So uh, chiller, we moved over. The mats, we moved over. We drained the glycol out of them and, and moved those over. Um, the low E ceiling wasn't the right dimension for the, for the new uh, facility. So we, we bought a new one of those. And the insulation um, you know, wasn't, wasn't optimal. So we replaced the insulation. But yeah, all the equipment, it was, uh, you know, we did the move ourselves. So, you know, other than, so, and obviously we had a rigging company move the, the chiller itself, but Mm -hmm. the ice mats and everything else uh, we did ourselves um, with just club member volunteer help. And, you know, it, it wasn't as difficult as we imagined it would be. Um, Our biggest challenge is, you know, we couldn't bring those all into the warehouse that we were still doing construction on. So we rented a, we rented a a trailer um, out back and put them in there and there was, only about a half inch gap between the top of the trailer and the, uh, and the ice mat, uh, headers. So that was a little bit of a challenge, but other than that, you know, and, you know, a lot of volunteer work and a lot of sweat, 
equity from, from our members, but yeah, all that stuff moved over. We had to buy some additional ice mats for the additional sheet. Right. Uh, but the equipment moved over pretty flawlessly. Uh, we ran into, um, you know, some challenges with, uh, uh, with the electrical setup at the, at the new facility, even though it was across the street and 200 yards down, uh, it was actually a different, uh, electric, uh, feed that was coming in. Uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, different voltage level and stuff like that. So we had to make some last minute adjustments, but, uh, well, it's funny. Cause I, I, I know little about construction or all these things. So when I hear people talk about it and you make it sound easy, what I'm imagining is like people like carrying a chiller down the street themselves, or I'd have no idea how to do it, but it's, uh, I, I do know as well, I'm going to throw you out there as a resource for people who are doing this. I know you probably get bugged about that a lot, but I'm going to throw that out there that you're a great resource for people contemplating a, the warehouse setup uh, or, or the move from the warehouse. Um, I heard you on the rocks across the pond podcast uh, a while back and you said um, uh, one of the things you did was, was you said there was some guidelines from USA curling at the time that you ignored because you didn't want to know maybe how daunting the whole thing was. And you thought you could figure it out better yourself, which, which I think was a good strategy to be honest. But looking back, was there how many things would you have done differently or, or what was, what was one thing you would have done differently? Oh boy. Uh, you know, I think that the challenge, you know, you always have in these warehouse type of facilities. And I think, I think others will attest to it is, um, you know, sealing the pond. So in in essence, you're, you're building up from a, from a concrete floor and, and creating a pond for the ice to be formed in and sealing that is always a challenge. And we, we, you know, you always think you have it covered, but water is water is smart, and <laughs> yeah, water always tricky. finds a way. Uh, and 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 we you know we still have a leak you know this time around, even though we we did more uh, liners and uh, and put down some EPDM. Uh, you know we probably I probably would have invested in in getting a professional to come out and and work on that. Yeah, uh, both times. One time we relied on the contractor for guidance. The second time we said, well, we know better. We're going to do a bit more. And it still wasn't there. And it, you know, it probably would have cost us five grand, probably five grand that we didn't have. Uh, right. But to, to bring somebody out to seal that, you know, would have, would save us. Um, you a know, lot of heartache and headache. A lot of heartache. And, you know, <laughs> even every, you know, it's fine during the season, but when we melt, um, you know, it, it comes into the warm room a little bit. It's not as bad. You know, Portland has a, in their setup, at least they used to, they used to have the the warehouse for the art museum located next to them. So any leakage would be, a would be damaging art. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we don't have any of like that. Even the old location, the, the unit next to us that we leaked into was, was uh, it wasn't a big issue. We You're had not next to Fort Wayne's most precious modern art collection <laughs> exactly. right exactly. next door. Um, <laughs> What's, what's EPDM? I have no idea. I mean, I, I don't know. So tell me what EPDM is real quick. Sure. EPDM is, is the rubber roofing material that are, that is used on flat roofs. Got it. So it Got comes it. in a big roll. I think we, ours was, uh, 40 feet wide, which is not wide enough for our pond. So, you know, we had to seam it and overlap it and then seal it with, a a couple of different things. Um, so the idea was there 
you know, rubber roofing material is designed to keep water out. And uh, uh, so either we didn't seal it well or it got punctured at some point. I'm not sure why we're leaking or it's leaking out over that somehow. Uh, not quite sure. It's tough to tough to narrow that down. Yeah, I'm sure I could narrow it down for you if I got to look at it, Craig. I can go <laughs> eyes on it. But uh, hey, let's talk about uh, programming for a moment at Curling Clubs. And uh, you have uh, some great stuff on that. And um, when I first met you, you told me about you have a son with autism. And you talked to me about the league you created uh, at the Fort Wayne Club for special needs children and their parents, siblings, or friends. Um, and, and it's it's always stuck with me. And I, I've told other clubs about it. I think it's a terrific idea. And it was edu- it educated me too. One of the things you mentioned was that parents with special needs children have a difficult time doing activities with them in a sort of a, a stress free, supportive environment. So so tell me a little bit about that league and and uh, and and how it works. Sure. So so actually, the whole reason that I got into curling uh, was that my wife and I identified it as something that our son could potentially do with us. So we started, we started, we did some learn to curls in Bowling Green, Ohio in 2006 after the Olympics and found that he, which could, is a two and a half hour drive, right? It's a two yeah, and a half, two and half hour. hours each way. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a dedication uh, right out of the gates, but keep going. Yep. Yep. So, so we did that, had a great time um, and, and really found that, uh, that it was something that he enjoyed. And, and as you sort of hinted at, as a, as a parent of a child with special needs, you know, what we've found is it's really difficult to find physical activities that to do with, with our child where I can enjoy it to the fullest, right? If I take him out for basketball, you know, it's, it's me having fun spending time with him, but I'm not necessarily enjoying basketball because, you know, not that I can dunk, but I couldn't if I was playing against him. Um, And curling, because you know, two factors in, in my mind. One is you take turns when you go and there's nobody with the exception of sweeping behind the T line. There's nobody actively working against you from a defensive standpoint. It's true, right? Like you can, you can go and curl. One of the things I've always, and this is in tangential, tangential, I guess, but one of the things that I've always thought about curling, like, like if I go out and play Andre Agassi in a tennis court match, even now at his age, I have no chance. Right. right. But, but he could curl against me and be terrible, but have a chance. So, and, and, or at least not have his play impeded. Right. So that's exactly. Yeah. So, so your, your play is your own and it, and you, you play against a tough opponent, right. They may take out your shots, but they're not going to negatively impact your own play. Right. So, so I can play. And when it's my turn to throw, it's as if I'm playing in a normal game, right. I can, I can throw it. I can, you know, the sweeping is, is the same, everything yeah. else. But when my son's going, you know, I can assist him with the delivery. I can, I can help uh, like what we call foot wedges to help him, you know, get it in slightly the right direction or reverse right. turn for him if he needs to. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's something that, that I think a lot of parents of, of children with special needs don't really have is, is the ability to, to enjoy something together. Uh, because the, the list of physical activities are so small that, that that can happen. And so, so we sort of identified that as a thing. We, uh, you know, we did some stuff when we were still at the arena. So we had the floor curling sets and would go into my son's, right. gym, uh, my son's school and teach adap- adaptive uh, physical education and, yep. you know, deliver the stones uh, 
that way and teach them a little bit about the game. And then as a capstone, we had the ice rink donate the time during the day and we took them out on the ice. So we did a little bit of that before we got into our dedicated facility. But once we got into the dedicated facility, then, you know, we had much, much more ability to to uh, to work with individuals with special needs. And, and we approached a local foundation, one that uh, focused on improving the lives of individuals with disabilities. And we talked to them about what we had done and what we wanted to do. And uh, as, as many people will find, there's foundations out there that have a, a legal requirement to give money. And uh, if you can come up with something that covers their uh, their, their goals, uh, they're, they're pretty open to giving you money. And so, uh, we partnered with them. They helped us, you know, the first thing was, is that we, we wanted to make things as safe as possible. So they covered the cost of equipment, you know, helmets, halos, grippers for, for everybody, you know, even new, new brooms and broom heads, because some of the stuff we had was pretty dated from, from, that we got hand-me-downs when we had started the club six years right. ago and uh, started this up, started promoting it. And I think our biggest challenge today is still promoting it and getting the participation that we could possibly have. And uh, we run it uh, Sunday afternoons for about an hour and a half. We, we play, depending on pace of play, we play, you know, three or four ends. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our focus is really on, you know, in, you know, uh, individuals feeling empowered, feeling like they can do things, enjoying themselves. So we highly encourage parents, siblings, and peers to play alongside. We start people, we don't have people show up and tell them to, you know, teach them the slide. Cause that can be, especially for individuals with disabilities, whether they be physical, or intellectual, can be frustrating. We mm-hmm. get them started immediately with the stick and, and within five minutes, they're sliding a stone down the ice and, and, right gradually grow their ability. And, and we've had, you know, a lot of success. I mean, in one year we had 86 unique participants and uh, the grant generates, you know, if we have a good year from promotion and participation and, you know, a little over 20,000 a year in revenue for the club. Um, so it's really incumbent upon us to get the participation level up. Um, they, it reflects well on the club within the community as well, you know, which is something I think as curling clubs, we don't I've, always think about. I've, I've been a huge advocate, especially for arena clubs, of making yourself an asset in the community one way or right. another. Because if you want sponsorship dollars, if you want grant dollars, nobody's going to give that to a bunch of guys standing around drinking beer and sliding stones down the ice. But if you do yeah. stuff for veterans, if you do stuff for the elderly, if you do stuff for individuals with special needs – people will open their wallets and, and that's what it's, that's what it's about. If you want to make the, the leap to, to dedicated ice, you've got to be an asset to the community and do stuff more than just, you know, leagues. You've got to find ways to, to, to solve problems in your community or at least assist problems in the community. And then, you know, and then once you're in a dedicated facility, those, those interest groups as well can be terrific programming revenue sources. I mean, uh, you know, you can have, I mean, I, I've talked to, you know, clubs where they have a, a, a two-on-two seniors league, you know, just, you know, and, and there's, um, you know, groups for, for veterans, obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's not only grant money, but you have, you can have, you know, programming going on, especially at hours that maybe other people can't play at. So it's a, uh, it's an opportunity all around uh, yeah. for, for people to take advantage of. Yep. You can use, I mean, you, once you have dedicated ice, it's a fixed cost. So there's no incremental cost in doing these things other than 
the volunteer time of your members. And it drives, you know, even the special needs program drives other membership. We've got two individuals that play in our special needs league, but also play in regular leagues. Now the grant covers that for them, but they're, they're, you know, full-fledged members of the club. And, uh, you know, we do programs for, uh, for disabled veterans and that's covered by the grant as well. So our view is any, any determination of disability qualifies. And, you know, we have a partnership with a company, a group called Turnstone, which is a local Paralympic organization where we do, you know, wheelchair curling clinics. And we've had people from the Paralympic team come in and we've had, uh, Steve Brown, when he was running that program, come down and, and run clinics and things of that nature. And, you know, the more the more clubs can do, especially clubs that are looking for money, you know, from outside to make yourself an asset in the community is, is going to benefit the club. Yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of Paralympics, I think Goalball is headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, isn't it? Have you- yeah. So yeah. Turn, Turnstone, uh, you know, went big on that and they did a big uh, expansion to their facility and ended up being the, the training center for goalball. Yeah. Yeah. When I was on the, on the AAC athletes advisory council with USOPC, uh, I got to know the rep from goalball pretty well. And he was talking about spending time in Fort Wayne. Yeah. Um, so, you know, recently we just had a conversation. One of the things you mentioned that I thought was interesting, you we were talking about marketing during Olympic year, obviously that's been big for your club in the past. Uh, but one of the things you pointed out was the importance of starting those efforts well in advance of the Olympics themselves as the curling season gets rolling. And I think that's uh, a good suggestion for a lot of clubs. I think some clubs do that. Maybe some clubs don't think about it as much. What, what, what are some of the things your club might be planning to do next year? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's an interesting point. And it, it, it's something that I think we um, you know, have failed at previously and, and just waited till the Olympics were just about upon us to, to right. really – do an active marketing effort. So we're, we're doing a much more proactive uh, approach this year. Um, You know, a variety of things we're doing uh, a lot more open houses uh, and not focusing on the dollars. You know, we do learn to curls, but we're going to do a bit more open houses where people can just come in, check out the facility, you know, get on the ice for a few minutes, try some things out. And we'll be doing that throughout the year. Uh, We're doing some things with, uh, uh, with our local sports team. So, uh, you know, Fort Wayne is a, is a hockey mad town and we have a, a team here called the Comets. The Comets with a Comets K, with I a think, K, right? right? Yes. Yep. Uh, so in fact, we were going to have the Comets out uh, just uh, in late March of last, uh, of 2020 and ended up having to cancel uh, mm-hmm. due to COVID lockdown. Uh, but we're going to have them out and, uh, and that's an opportunity. You know, it'll be a private event for them. They like to do things, uh, as a you know, team building and, and, you know, they do a plenty of fan events, so they're not going to have fans out, but they're going to promote it on social media. And right. the idea is in my mind is get people out to learn about curling so they can enjoy watching in the Olympics. And, and, you know, if you get people out to do that and, and not set necessarily to become curlers, but to understand the game more, you're going to get curlers out of that. So, so we're doing, we're working on a, a promotion you know, uh, to really help people understand the game in advance of the Olympics so they can maximize their Olympic viewing experience. Cause you talk to so many people and they're like, I watched every hour of, of curling coverage. I could, I just, I got sucked in by it right. and they come to a learn to curl and they're like, okay, well, how does the scoring work? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
it's, it's amazing it holds them that long because there are people with no idea what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we're really focusing on, you know, pulling people in to, to educate them so that they can enjoy the Olympics. And, and some of that may be, you know, off ice, you know, people that don't even want to go on the ice uh, and try it, but we're just going to just want to learn about the game and we'll teach them. And then we'll do, you know, learned curls as well. So people can try it and have a little bit of experience of it before the Olympics. You know, we're going to try that starting in September when we open, uh, you know, uh, we'd likely, I think interest will grow over time leading up until February, you know, just prior to the Olympics and interest will be real high there. But um, the goal is, you know, the challenge is the Olympics are right at the tail end of the curling season and you, you get lots of interest and, and there's a limited window of time afterwards to get people hooked. Yep. And we want to get people in as early as possible because the earlier we get them in, the more they're able to participate, the more likely they are to come back the next season. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I've talked to you about this, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, at USA Curling, we're going to try to help with that education in, in advance. I think it's a great idea. Um, have you guys done wraparound leagues in the past where someone can join post Olympics and then carry that forward to the next season? We haven't. You mentioned that when we spoke and I had talked oh. to one other, one other uh, club previously. Um, but that's a, that's a great idea. And if, if, if clubs haven't thought about that, you know, because curling, season ends shortly after the Olympics, you get people in, they get three or four weeks of play. They're paying for a full league. They get the first three or four weeks in at the end of the season. And then they've got to come back in the fall for the rest of it. And, and you, you, hopefully they've made a, a financial commitment and therefore they come back. And, and if they don't, you've at least got their money. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I mentioned to you. My club did that. And most, you know, we got almost all of that group, I think it was 80 curlers after 2010 came back, but a couple of people actually did that league paid for their full membership the next year and then didn't show up, but also didn't request a refund. So, uh, yeah. you know, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's important though, because it's so easy to, you know, people come out and then yet, you know, it's, it's not great when you want to do something and then we're such an instant gratification society. And then somebody says, well, we'll see you next October or September. But um, so it's something for clubs to think about. Now, last thing I'm going to ask you, well, I got two more things to ask you, Craig, but um, I, you know, everybody at USA curling right now, we certainly don't think we're perfect. So I'm going to ask you what you think USA curling can do a better job of. Ah, and, um, and, and I'm not going to ask you to make it like a 20 minute answer, but, <laughs> but, I, but I do want to know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, two things and, and I know this is being worked on, but you know, every club out there is being run by, by volunteers practically in, in the U S and, and, yeah. and, and we don't know, we don't know all the details and we're, we're not experts, but guidance on, on return to curling this year, we, we yeah. got good guidance last year. It's important that we have guidance this year. Uh, things have changed a bit with vaccines and everything else. And, and so we want to understand, you know, how we should be planning to operate or, or what at least the recommendations are, obviously we can make our own choices, but that's, that's helpful. And I know that's being worked on. And, and so that's important. Uh, you know, I would say in, in my mind, and, and I think with lots of others, there's, there's still lots of questions around the new membership model yeah. and, uh, you know, what, what that means and, and what that means for insurance, you know, we've, we, you know, from what I understand and, and, you know, I haven't delved down into it too much because it hadn't hit us yet. We weren't one of the pilot clubs. Right. Um, but you know, my understanding is people will go directly to USA curling. 
to get their membership. Uh, you know, I wonder of, you know, how many of my club members would be interested, would do that and would see value in doing that. You know, there's lots yep. of, you've, you've got 20% of your club members, right. That, that do bond spieling elsewhere. And, and, uh, you know, maybe a, a, you know, 2% that, that try to do competitive stuff, but what's the value to the 80% that just play in leagues at our local club, what's going to make them do that. Uh, and then secondly, is there, you know, are, is, is the club going to have dues and, and is the incremental is the total cost of the club dues plus the individuals going to be the same as what it was before, or is there, is there additional? So more clarity and better communication around that, I would say. And that's, I'll, I'll say that's on the way, probably by the time this podcast comes out, it should be clarified, but I will say, you know, and I'll, uh, it should be clarified by the time there's not going to be a dues increase this year. Okay. Uh, so it's $34 per member. With that, you're going to get the $6 insurance coverage. The club will get that. There's a $3 fee for clubs for each member, mm -hmm. but there may be some incentives to, for clubs to earn that back. And you're, we are going to have clubs that are going to be able to, where members will sign up directly on the software platform, but clubs are also going to be able to do it the traditional way as well. So okay. that's a little bit of guidance. The insurance package we feel really good about. We think it's something that clubs should really need. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I think the insurance stuff is great. You know, we I've been part of the, the insurance program since we got dedicated ice and, uh, you know, I think the new program and the new cost is is a real boon to to all the clubs. So really th happy and thankful uh, for yeah. you, Carolyn, for yeah. putting that together. I mean, I'm not an insurance expert, but uh, you know, I, I know that it you know slip and fall coverage will probably not cover someone getting injured on the ice, et cetera. This package does that. The other things, and now I'm really making the pitch here for USA Curling, but I'll just explain it. The other things, you know, you get safe sport. Uh, which is yep. super important for our sport. You only have to look at some of the other sports like swimming and gymnastics and the problems they've had. Absolutely. Um, to, and, and, you know, thankfully, you know, we haven't had big problems in curling, but, but it's naive to think that uh, we, we, we shouldn't be vigilant um, and safe sport. And then the, you know, the last thing is, is as members were, you know, we're the national body for the sport. We're promoting the sport in the Olympics. We're doing things like that. Now, member dues don't go towards our national teams, that all comes from the USOPC, but uh, it does, you know, championships we run, services we provide. Um, so all those things. Um, yep. But but I appreciate that feedback. So there, so, because, I, and I, look, I, I really do want to get that information cleared up. And I know everybody at USA Curling does too. We had a little hiccup with the software platform when it launched. That sort of set things back. Um, I, think, I think the other thing is, is just more and better ways for promotion, you know, leading up to the Olympics and, yeah. and doing things. You and I talked about this, you know, if, if team Schuster or somebody like that could do a, how to watch curling video and have, uh, you know, a little five minute or eight minute instructional thing about different facets of the game. Yeah. And, and we could promote that, you know, in our area, um, you know, we'd pay to promote that via Facebook or, or other social media. And, and that would, raise interest as well. So any ways to, to grow our membership and, and promote ourselves, you know, there's lots of clubs in, in curling deserts, as, as you referred, like us, where the vast majority of the population knows very little about curling, right. You know, outside of, you know, Northern Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, there's lots of places where I mentioned curling and, and they're thinking hair curling or weightlifting. And the last thing they think about is this, this stuff on ice. So 
promotion is is key and you know pooling pooling the assets or knowledge of the entire curling community and and coming up with ways you know i shouldn't have to you know it shouldn't be up to individual clubs to to come up with a commercial or or different ways sure. to promote you know ads you know whether you know if in theory you know usa curling could produce you know, club level type ads that we could customize and send out via Facebook or whatever else to help grow the sport. And it it, collectively, it's a lot less effort and and time and money if it's done at the overall level, as opposed to each individual club doing their own thing. And that's underway right now. Actually, they're working with uh, the the group that did our, did the branding so that we will have more, more of that to come. Um, But those are all good thoughts. And it's, uh, fortunately, it's all things we're working on. We have to deliver all that, but uh, I definitely think, uh, you know, nothing you say there is, is, you know, isn't reasonable. So um, my last question for you is what's your uh, name, your favorite place to curl besides your own club? Yeah, certainly, certainly my own. Uh, well, it's a, the know, trouble with your own club is you every time you go there, there's a million questions and things to do probably. Right. So sometimes it's nice to go somewhere else. Yeah. But I have like a $17,000 credit at the bar. So I can, oh, that's drink, true. I can drink away those questions. Um, <laughs> other places to curl. Boy, I, you know, lots of lots of things come to mind. So the Leland Owl Club is, oh, yeah. is a really neat little two sheeter. Uh, attached to a brew pub, yeah. um, you know, out in a, in a, in a great area and, and Dave and, and, and this crew that run that are, are awesome. So that's a, a fun little place. I haven't played in a spiel there, but I've gone up and practiced uh, during the summertime and that was, that was really nice. Um, you know, I, I like some of the, the warehouse clubs. I, I really like to go to see what people have done. So you know, clubs like Columbus that we modeled ourselves on and, and Cincinnati that's done some, some cool stuff, you know, a hell of a lot cheaper than I even did. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's an, a neat little club. Um, you know, the big ones are always cool, but I, you know, <laughs> I like this. I like the scrappy clubs that have, have done stuff uh, on the cheap and, and have had to struggle and know the, know the struggles that, that I've had. I like those sorts of clubs. You're, you're the fan of the scrappy upstarts, and then you go in with your engineering head to see what they've done in there, I guess. so And, and uh, get ideas, right? There's yeah. always, uh, who knows, I could be doing this again in five years, and, and I'll have picked up some more knowledge from what other people have done. You know, I, I love in Cincinnati, they have that open area that's sort of open to the ice where you, yeah. can, you can actually sort of, I mean, you could yell at people on the ice while you drink a beer, which I think is uh, fantastic. Yeah, Columbus had that. They eventually... Uh, you know, they had just shy of room for a fourth sheet and, and had a big open area down the whole length where you could sit out there in the, in the ice room and, and drink and harass people. And yeah. they eventually enclosed it. But yeah, that's a, a pretty cool thing. I love the idea more of that kind of interaction in, in clubs. Not all, yeah. you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's places it's not great, but I, I do love when people think about the game a little differently. Well, Craig, uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, hope to get out to Fort Wayne sometime this uh, coming season, see your new place. And uh, we'll be in touch, and uh, hopefully we can continue uh, to improve at USA Curling and, and do more to help clubs like yours. Yeah, no, I appreciate everything that USA Curling is doing to, to to grow the sport and help us through these these challenging times. And I think you'll make a significant impact. Uh, you know, you've been an asset to curling, you know, in, in past years, and and I think with this platform, you'll you'll continue to do that. And uh, appreciate uh, the the coverage and. and 
always happy to help clubs, you know, either arena clubs, talk to lots and lots of clubs, but always happy to talk to arena clubs on, on what we've done and, and give them tips to help them make the transition and, and, uh, or those that are in the process of doing that and tell them some of the gotchas that, that we've learned about that, uh, that hopefully we can help them avoid. And do you mind if I share some, your email in the show notes on this or? No, absolutely. My phone right. number, my phone number and email, feel free to share both of those. Uh, What's your, uh, what is your email? I think it's pretty, uh, is it? Craig, Craig at fortwaynecurling.com. All spelled out. F-O-R-T-W-A-N-Curling.com. That works pretty easy. All right, Craig, thanks very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, summer. Thank you, Dean. That was Craig Fisher from the Fort Wayne Curling Club on the whole spiel. You can find out more about this Indiana facility at fortwaynecurling.com and you can connect with Craig at the email address you'll find in the show notes. I'm Dean Gemmel, Director of Curling Development at USA Curling, and I hope you'll reach out to me with suggestions for future episodes or to share ideas that can help grow our game. Email me at dean.gemmel, G-E-M-M-E-L-L, at usacurling.org. And remember to visit the USA Curling website to find news, get results, watch web streams, or check out some of the latest USA Curling merchandise and apparel. Be a member, be a supporter, be a fan, but stay involved in the sport you love.